looking in verse number 19 in a moment. Romans chapter 8. Invite you back for the evening service tonight. A young lady who's going to the mission field of Mexico, Brooke Brainine, will be with us in the evening service. And uh, years ago when I taught Bible class in uh, Suburban Baptist Christian School, Brooke was one of our students there. And she is the granddaughter of Dr. Clinton Brainine. And so Brooke will be back and be in the service tonight to share with you her burden for the work of Mexico. Hope you can come and be with us for that service at 6 o'clock. And don't forget to pray for the nursing home services at 2 o'clock this afternoon. For the moment, Romans chapter 8, verse number 17 and 18. Note carefully, if you would, the passage. The Bible says in Romans eight seventeen, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Passage of Scripture brings to mind the message titled, The Success of Suffering. Several years ago now, there was a pastor from a foreign country who came to the United States of America. He visited our land and he made quite an extensive tour of the U.S., and while he was here, he spoke to great numbers of people, some individually and some in great crowds. He was asked by one of the interviewers when he came to a news conference after one of his many speaking engagements, they asked him what he saw as one of the obvious defects in American believers. That was the question. His answer was spontaneous and very direct. He said, quote, they have a very inadequate view of suffering. This man happened to come from a country where Christians suffer and where they have paid a price for their faith in the past. And in conversations with some of them, he perceived that our understanding of suffering was somehow missed. And he believed that when, as this person put it, what's one of the defects in American believers, his very quick statement was, it's their understanding of suffering. I say to you this morning, we're all programmed, pre-programmed, I think, from our various youngest days and from our earliest remembrances, as when you felt pain, you went to your mother or your father and asked them to solve the problem, whatever it was. Whatever it was painful, you got it removed. If it was a splinter in the finger, if it was a mashed foot and a toe or a finger, you simply got somebody to fix it. Suffering has never been something to which we gravitated to. It's something we always sort of shunned. So the fact of the matter is, no matter what the pain or the suffering is, we always had this idea that whatever it is, we need to get it fixed, and we need to get it fixed now. What's interesting to those of you who are medical students or those of you who are just well-read citizens, you know full well that pain is a part of God's plan. In fact, the matter is, I know some doctors who think it's the greatest thing God ever did, that he created pain. And they'll tell you in a heartbeat why they believe that, because pain is always an indicator. It's a warning. It's a signal. It's telling you something. Uh, no matter where the pain comes from or what it's about, if it's pain, and there are people who have to define that for some others because we have in what we call sensations of numbness or we have sensations of tingling, those are not classified as pain. But when it's pain, when it's pain, uh, it's as it were God's warning system in your body saying something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. By the way, I should have mentioned that Shirley did earlier to be praying for Polly on Tuesday when she sees the surgeon concerning her sickness. So let me remind you to pray for Polly Roberts also, if I may. Consequences of the pain, and this came home to me years ago when I read a book concerning lepers, people with leprosy. Uh, most people never died with leprosy as the disease that the disease killed them, never did. In fact, it kills far fewer people than any of the common diseases. Leprosy, there's a leprosy uh, column right now in Louisiana, I believe, and maybe one in Georgia, and there's one over in Alabama that used to be, and maybe it's out of business now. But the point is, there's still lots of people that have leprosy. Don't hear a lot about it, don't see them, they're not, they're not putting the news and whatever. But the fact of the matter, there are lots of people who have it, they just don't die of it like they used to. And the fact of the matter is, hardly anybody ever died of leprosy. They almost always died because they couldn't feel pain. You know, you'd uh, you'd mash your finger in a door and your, your hand would be sticking through the door and it'd be closed on your hand and, and you would have no idea what was going on. 
they tell the story of a man who cut off his hand. He was cutting a chicken, and he cut off his hand, holding a chicken down to cut his head off. He cut his hand off. He just simply wrapped the thing up and, and let it go for three days before he went to see a doctor. He had leprosy. He couldn't feel any pain. There was no pain to it whatsoever. The fact of the matter is that happens all the time with people with leprosy. So you find a doctor who treats leprous people, and you'll find a doctor who sings the praises of pain. I mean, boy, he, he just thinks pain's the greatest thing he ever was. But for those of us who have healthy bodies and pain works as a signal for something to be addressed, we don't think of it in those terms. To the world, though, however, the pain and the suffering issue is a major problem, and they're accepting and embracing the Christian faith, so they say. Let me give you two illustrations. These are very recent. One of them came from a college not very far from this very church. A group of college kids was asked what they had against Christianity, and most of them gladly answered, quote, I cannot believe in a God who allowed Auschwitz, the Jewish death camps. They don't believe in God because God allowed the Auschwitz death camps. Another of those college students said, my teenage sister died of leukemia recently. Despite all the prayers that we prayed to God for her healing, I just can't see myself embracing a God that let that happen. End of her quote. So I say to you, understanding and, and rightly dealing with suffering as a true believer will have a profound effect on how the pagans see and understand suffering. You see, if we don't understand suffering and we don't deal with suffering properly, whether it be the suffering that comes to everybody or whether it is the suffering that comes to you because of your testimony before the world for as a Christian, no matter what the classification of the suffering is, and every, everybody has some, uh, the fact of the matter is how you deal with it has a tremendous impact on how people see the God we say we serve. So you see, some Christian people have just absolutely turned God off. I mean, that is, turned the world off toward God because they didn't handle suffering very well. I mean, they made God look out some ogre or somebody who was mean and ugly and unkind because they were suffering, and they, they just let it be known. So what happens and happens so often is how you handle it will have an effect on other people, how they see God as uh, the one who allowed it. I mentioned this to you that uh, it's the same kind of thing that... Um, People need to watch out if, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to put a little fish on the back of your car or a little, you know, a little license plate with a fish on it and so forth or a, a bumper sticker that says, I love Jesus. Then the thing that it does, it puts you immediately in a responsibility to be dead sure that that car doesn't do anything that would dishonor the Lord. Anything. Don't you dare cut anybody off. Don't you dare go to Walmart and park in a, in a no-parking zone or in a handicapped parking. Don't you dare do that. Don't you dare speed down the interstate so everybody can see this loving Jesus person is, is violating all the laws and is driving recklessly. Don't you do that. And if you bump somebody and getting in and out of a parking place, don't you dare run off without leaving your name and number where they can reach you so you can address the damage that you did to that person's car. You see, what happens so often is we have this idea that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I can just do like I want to and live like I will, and it'll have no effect on anybody. Nothing could be further from the truth. You can't do that. And you can't handle suffering your way. You've got to handle it in a biblical way, lest you turn people off to the God of heaven because they won't understand why he lets you suffer if all you do about it is grumble, complain, and murmur. You've got to be careful about it. And, and, and it doesn't matter what sickness you have. It doesn't matter what infirmity you may come across. It doesn't matter if it's the suffering for the cause of Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of suffering classification is. It's important that however and whatever it is that you handle it properly and biblically. I say this to you from the passage in verse number 17. The Greek word in verse number 17 is the word... Symposco, it's a word that carries with it, and symposthos, as some pronounce it, would find only here. It's only found here in one other place. What's interesting about it, it's the phrase in verse 17 that says, If so be that we suffer with. Suffer with is that Greek word. It has the ideal that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where the only other time that Greek word appears in the New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where Paul wrote, And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. The point made there, it re refers to uh, suffering with believers. That is, one believer suffering with another believer. And it's interesting that that 
Greek word simply means to experience pain jointly, to feel some kind, the same kind of pain, or to sympathize with. It's interesting to me that the word sympathy is made up of two Greek words. One is sim, which means together, and pathos, meaning the ideal of suffering. So you put them together, you have sympathy is the sameness of feeling of suffering. That's what sympathy is. If you have sympathy for somebody, you have the same feelings for them. You understand what they're going through, and you sympathize with that. You are, as it were, feeling the same feelings they feel. That's what it means. Interesting, verse number 18, though, which we come to today in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The first thing I would tell you, just as an overview of the verse, is this. It doesn't matter what kind of suffering we go through. And there are people in this room who have gone through much more suffering than I'll ever go through in my life, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is that what one word I would encourage you in is what this one verse says. It doesn't matter how much suffering you've gone through with. It doesn't matter how much you'll go through with. It's not worthy to be compared with what you'll have when you get home. And that's what's important. And that's calling it, keeping it in perspective. If you're not careful, you'll get so caught up in what you're going through right here that you'll forget there is anything out there. But I remind you today, you're not home yet. If you've been saved by the grace of God, this is just the journey. This is just not home. And no matter how much you've got here, and as uh, Brian was talking about in the Sunday school, it's not everybody who gets all the most toys wins the game. It has nothing to do with any of that. None of it. We're here and left here with purpose, and our purpose is not to see what we can accumulate. It's to see what glory we can bring to God with what we have and how we use it. So I say to you today that verse 18 says to you immediately, just as an overview, don't you get caught up in this world thinking that, man, I tell you, I don't know if I can handle this. I just can't stand this. I remind you, this is not even comparable to what God has lined up and in store for you as you wait upon him. There's another thing, and I take you verse by verse or phrase by phrase to break it down so we can see it more easily. But look, if you would, at the very beginning of verse 18 where he says, For I reckon... Uh, that's an interesting thing because uh, it's a little different from some of the other references Paul has made in the New Testament, even in the book of Romans. Uh, he's not talking about pie in the sky here. He's not talking about speculation or empty hopes. Uh, what uh, is interesting, the word that Paul uses here is a word that means new, numerical calculation. Uh, I mean by that, it is something that you would do, for instance, uh, if our... If we would use it in our language today, it would be something that we would use a calculator. We would we have a problem, and we would sit down, and we would work this problem out. That's the Greek word here. It means a conclusion that's come to after careful consideration and thoughtfulness. That's what it really means. What he's saying is, this didn't just pop in my mind. This is something I have looked into, considered, and under the inspiration of God, I tell you. I reckon... And notice what he does. He takes two things and puts them side by side or puts them over against each other. The first thing is he takes the suffering of the present time, this present world we live in, and he puts it over against the glory which shall be yours. What that means is it paints a picture of a set of scales. If we were to set a set of scales here and we had two platforms on either of these and we were to begin placing things in them, it would be like the ideal of setting an elephant on one side and setting a feather on the other. That's what the verse is saying. It's saying that the present suffering is on one side, the future glory is on the other, and the present suffering cannot match. It cannot even be compared with what's in this other platform. That's what he's saying. It'd be ridiculous to put an elephant in one side and a, and a feather in the other. You'd say, that's just not comparable. That's not, that's not smart. That's not even intelligent. And that's his words here. It's not even smart. This is so, these are so incomparable that you wouldn't even put them in the same scale. That's what he's saying. And so what he tells you is, no, it's not even worthy to consider such a concern. What he points out is that most Christians are so much this world-centered, they get caught up in what they can get out of the Christian life here and now, and then when suffering comes along, for whatever the reason it comes, their concern is stop the pain and suffering. That's the first move we make, stop the pain and suffering. They forget to consider two points. One, they forget to question themselves, Lord, what purpose, both for now and for the future, is served by my suffering. What's the purpose here? What are you doing this for? What are you allowing this for? 
or have you brought this into my life to get my attention? You have it. You have it. I'm listening. What is it? Or on the other side of the scale is, what in the world are you doing with it? What do you want to accomplish with this? I want to cooperate with you. I want to work with you. I don't want to work against you. I don't want to be murmuring and complaining and aggravating about this. I don't want other people to suffer because I have suffered. I don't want any of that. So how can I cooperate with you to accomplish what you've got in mind for what I'm going through? You see, we so often forget that. We just go right directly to the ideal God. Remove this thing. Maybe like Paul the Apostle who had that thorn in the flesh and he, he besought the Lord three times. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with going to the Lord and asking Him to remove something that is a cause of suffering in your life. No, nowhere in the Bible does it prohibit that. But what it encourages is after He says to you, no, I'm not removing this thing because I've laid it, laid it upon you for my glory, then the attitude that you're supposed to pick up, I'm supposed to pick up on, is okay, Lord, fine. I'm willing to bear it. You just give me grace. You just give me grace. You give me the grace to carry this thing, and together we'll bring honor and glory to your name, and, and you'll do it through my suffering. I accept that, see. What you don't want to happen is that you get bitter over it. You don't want to get to a point where you're just complaining constantly about the pain that you're going through, as if nobody in the world ever had any more. See, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, and what you've gone through. Be careful that the devil will get you to feel so alone that you're the only person in the world who has as much pain as you do. You know, and, and, and it would do you good. It would do you wonders of good. If you ever get to that point, go down to the Methodist hospital, lower floor into the cancer ward, and just sit there for three hours. And watch every age group of people come through there in every stage of cancer that you can possibly imagine. It'll, it'll dry up your self-pity in a heartbeat. And my point is this. It's not that you don't have a right to suffer. Sure you do. God's got a plan for it. And He's going to use it to His glory. You don't have a, uh, what you don't have a right to is to go around and paint God in a picture that makes the world look at God as if He is really mean and ugly and unkind. That's what you don't want to happen. And so I submit to you that that's what Paul the Apostle is driving at here with these believers. And he's got two or three points he wants to make. Let me make a few of them to you now. First off, I need you to remember that suffering is a primary way that God tests, that God tests the validity, sincerity of what we say we believe. It's God's way. God has a way of bringing suffering into the life of a believer and one of the primary ways he uses to test the validity and sincerity of our faith. I think we've made too little of this over the years. It was uh, Job who said it and, and, and made it very much a flat up, what we call flat out statement. In the book of Job, in chapter number 23, Job said this, Job 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, and I cannot see him. Job's telling you that here's him in his own mind and heart. He, he didn't understand what God was doing. He seemed to, to not have the, the blueprint before him that God would say, this is what I'm doing in your life. And so Job was saying, every time I turn here, he's not there. And I look at that, and it's, that's not what he's doing. He's not doing this, and he's not doing that. Job said, I can't find him. But verse number 10 in the text, he says, but he knoweth, but he knoweth the way I take. And when he had tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, Job was saying, it's not as important that I know so much what he's doing as it is that I know he knows what he's doing in my life. And what that takes is a lot of trust. See, it's an easy thing to get lost in that and say, well, you know, what in the world's God up to? You know, and, and begin to distrust him. But Job said, hey, look, I don't know all he's doing. I look over there and he's not there. I look over here and he's not there. And I look over there and he's not there. But I do know this. He knoweth the way that I take. He knows where I stand. He knows what I'm doing. And he knows what I say. And he knows what I believe. He knows me. And when I come forth, I'll be tried like gold. And I'll be exactly what he set out to be. What that also says is, in essence, it'll purify him. I'm told, and I don't have any of these to prove it, but I have been told that you can test a real diamond by putting them in cold water. You can take cold, clear water... And you can put a diamond in it, I am told, by a jeweler. And as you put that real diamond in that water, it will sparkle as great or greater than it was when it was held in the hand. 
You can take a fake diamond and drop it in the same water and it'll lose its sparkle. The water simply is not where diamonds are supposed to be viewed. And consequently, because of that, we, we often talk about the water of suffering for diamonds. And the ideal is, is to put them in water and you can determine whether they're real or not. A lot of water comes in the lives of believers, causes suffering and pain, discomfort, both emotionally, physically. And the fact of the matter is, what it often does, it proves us. It really proves us. It tests us to say who we really are. And I'm convinced as a pastor, the further down the road we get, I believe God does that further and further to really identify His people. So I believe that it is, as Romans chapter 8 says, it's a checkpoint for you to test whether you know the Lord or not, whether you've suffered for Him or not. But the second phase of that is how you suffered for Him. I mean, whether you had it in the right attitude, the right spirit. Let me point out to you, I'll not take you to the text, but I remind you that when God spoke to Abraham and He said to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your son, uh, this son of promise that I promised you to have, and now he's arrived and he's getting older. I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and I want you to make an altar there and I want you to cut his throat. I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, and I know we've considered this over and again. But I can only imagine that Abraham did not tell Mrs. Abraham because he knew full well you'd knock it out the front door with a knife in hand and it's going to kill a kid, you know. I mean, I know parents who tell the kids they're going to kill them, but I know they don't mean that. But if it came down to push and shove and say, we're going to kill this kid, and I'm taking him up to Mount Moriah to do it because God said to kill him, I don't know if any woman would let her husband leave the house with a knife and a kid. And Abraham did. He not only got up there, he took servants with him, and they carried the wood and stuff, got to the foot of the mountain, and he told them, the lad and I will go there and worship, and we will return. Well, it's obviously evidence faith. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think you can get away from the fact that he still suffered emotionally about the reality of what he was about to do. He did not know that he would not kill his son. There's no, no evidence of the text in Genesis 22 that he said, God said, now look, I'll let you draw the knife down, but I won't let you cut his throat. Didn't say that. He said, you offer your son. So when Abraham left that place that day, I am confident in my own heart and spirit, as I understand the scripture, he was going to kill his son period. He was going to kill his son. And it was only as he raised that knife to kill that son, wrapped on that altar that day, that the angel of the Lord stopped him and told him to stop. And then that's when he said this. Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 12. And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. If that doesn't verify and solidify and show validity of faith, I don't know what does. God's angel, the angel of the Lord said, now I know. Now I know. He may have known judicially before, now he knew experientially. He surely saw in Abraham a man who meant what he said. He's not only a Christian. Here's a man committed to God, committed to him enough that he was willing to kill his own son because God said to do it. And notice in Genesis chapter 22, if you get the time to read it devotionally, you'll notice there are not a lot of details. You know, Abraham wasn't told, well, you kill him and I'll raise him up. You know, I'll, I'll perform a miracle. He didn't tell him any of that. He didn't say anything in there that would give this guy a great deal of encouragement. There was only one thing that would give him that. It was God who spoke. It was God who spoke. And when God speaks and tells you to do something, you don't need to fear about what you're into the responsibility is because He is God. He is God. He can bring about whatever He wills. What's important is for you to do His will and accomplish what He says. I think He suffered, but uh, that's, that's something obviously that in concern that uh, we'd say emotionally. Over in Matthew chapter 26, let me call your attention to this passage. In Matthew chapter 26... In verse number 31, you have the circumstance of, of the denial of Peter of our Lord. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Matthew 26, 31, 32 says, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, Yet will I never be offended. 
Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. But by the way, to be fair, likewise also said all the disciples. We sort of blame Peter for that ideal in verse 35, but the text says, but likewise also said all of them. All the disciples says, hey, uh, though we die with you, literally, though we suffer death with you, and that's important, though we suffer death with you, we'll not deny you. Then if you would, just skip over a, probably a page in your Bible. Look at Matthew 26 and verse number 69. Matthew 26, 69. And this is after the Lord Jesus Christ has been arrested. Verse 69 says, Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. And he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. Verse 71, And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him, and said unto them that were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse number 72. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. After a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. Verse 75. And Peter, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. You know why that happened? You know why he wept so bitterly? Because here was a guy who said, You know, hey, even if I suffered death, I'd never deny you. I'd never do that. Man, I mean, let everybody else do it, but not me. Let me tell you what happened was the suffering that Peter went through, and he went through some, no doubt. You talk about a turmoil, twisted mind for a few moments. Can you imagine what it would be for you to tell people you didn't know Jesus Christ? Can you imagine putting yourself in a situation where for you to speak up for Jesus Christ, you would got slapped across the face or maybe gotten hit on the head or maybe even hung on the cross? Can you imagine what you would do to try to tiptoe around that? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we would give in, but I am saying, don't you think your brain would play tricks on you trying to get you to, 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 to walk as close to the edge without crossing it? I suspect he went through a lot of mental gymnastics, and I'm sure he suffered emotionally during this process. And then when that cock crow, I'm confident, it all came falling in. And he wept bitterly, and he went out. And I'm sure that he didn't just weep once or twice, I'm confident that it stuck with him like glue that here I betrayed my Lord. You know, I denied the Lord Jesus Christ. What could I have been doing? And all he did was he suffered, suffered some reproach. They were accusing him of being with this man who was going to be crucified. And they said, yes, you were one of them. Your speech betrays you. I, we saw you with them. We know you're one of them. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely I'm not. I'm confident Peter suffered. And I'm also confident that it showed him how weak he really was. Suffering. Suffering has a way of showing us where our faith really rests. What am I depending on? Who am I looking to? Why did this come to me? There's a second thing, too, and this is found in 1 Peter chapter number 5 and verse number 10. Suffering is not only the primary way that God tests the validity and sincerity of what we say we believe or profess, but it also is the primary way God matures us. A primary way. Not a secondary or third way. It's a primary way. You can't read the Scriptures without seeing this. In fact, if I tell you from now on this week, if every time you pick up the Scriptures, you note how many times references are made to suffering You'll be amazed how much suffering there is in the New Testament. It is an often repeated subject. And the whole idea is, without doubt, God had purpose and plan for it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10 said, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That verse is obvious. What he's saying is that the suffering will make you 
And it'll make you, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. It'll make you what you ought to be. You will not learn to be all you ought to be in Christ, sitting on a merry-go-round, singing all kinds of children's songs. It ain't going to work. That's not where you really learn who you are. You learn who you are when you get in that crucible of, of suffering and pain. And you find out in a heartbeat what you really are and who you're depending on. You know, it's one of those things that, that people ask me and I've asked often, in fact, in the last two weeks. You think it's wrong for me to go to the doctor for this, quote, cause. You think I should. And in my first impression, yes, I think you ought to go to the doctor. I think doctors are God-given. I don't think there's any doubt about that. What you have to decide is how far you go with the doctor and what he tells you to do. You know, you, you may listen to him to a point, but then you may decide that's as far as I'm going. I'm not going that far. Thank you very much. My point is this. Whatever it is that God brings into your life, I think it's right that you pray first and then get to a doctor and then decide. What's God doing with this? What's his plan in my life or with this issue? What's he trying to accomplish? Let me work and cooperate with him. Let me take you to an interesting passage. This is really a, a blessing to me personally. I ran across it a long time ago, but it's somehow to come back to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 4. And look, if you would, at verse number 8. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. Paul writes this. Paul saying, verse 8, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The first two verses of that text, in fact, actually the verse, first three verses, talk about all the kinds of things that we might call suffering and pain. He talks about them here in this particular case. He's troubled, verse 8. That may be mental uh, or it could be physical. But his emphasis is on something that deals with the mind. Troubled. We're troubled. We're disturbed. We're concerned. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not despaired. Verse 39, persecuted. And that could get into some pain. You know, in Paul's case, absolutely pain. And what he did and what they did to him. But not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. But I want you to see in verse 10 and 11 what the intent was for it. In verse number 10 it says, Suffered so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest or might be revealed in my body. Can you imagine that? That here's a man who suffered so that people would notice or be seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And as if you missed it the first time, he repeats it in verse 11. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Twice. In these verses, he says, this suffering came about, mental, physical, all of this came about so that the life of Jesus Christ might be manifested in my body. That's quite a profound responsibility when it comes to suffering. So suffering is not something to just take frivolously. Suffering is such that God brought it to you so you can teach somebody how good God is, that he's trying to cause you to become more like him. And that's what this job is about in verse 10 and 11. Manifested in your body so that you will literally reveal to people what Jesus Christ is really like. I read a doctor, a Christian doctor, years ago. He said, there's no doubt about it. There's only one reason why Christians get cancer. is to teach pagans how to live with it. And he said, so when you see a Christian who has a disease that's absolutely draining the life out of their body, what God is looking for is that person is a billboard to say to the world, he looked like, I don't care if he slays me, I'll serve him. Same thing that Job said about his wife. When she said, oh, I'll curse God and die. And he said, hey, though he slay me, I'll serve him. That means I don't understand why God brought it into my life, but I do know this. It had to pass through his hand to get to me, and therefore I accepted for his glory and for the good that he can get out of it. I'm telling you this morning, that's no small primary kindergarten kind of theology because most people can't handle that. Most people couldn't. You'll forgive me, but many of you may not. You're not going to be able to be selfish and go this route. 
This is a complete and absolute surrender. God, whatever you bring into my life, I accept the suffering of it if it brings you the glory. And that's the third thing that suffering does. It makes forth a, what I call a primary way to glorify God. I don't know of a better way to glorify God than in the process of suffering. Look at this. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He was in chapter 4. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse number 3. It says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Verse number 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came on us or to us in Asia, and that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. Verse 9, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead. Then skip a lot of the inner text of the passage and look at verse number 20, where he says, For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. That's sort of the finalized point that what Paul brings about is that all of this was for God's glory. All of this suffering and difficulty and this business of being even pressed toward death, all of that, the end result is as long as it brings God glory, I'm willing to go through it. And he says that in that sense. By the way, suffering is not an end in itself. And if you ever get to the point of believing that, then you're a masochist. A masochist believes that suffering is for suffering's sake. And nothing more, nothing less. Has no purpose, has no plan. And anybody, and if you have, accused God of masochism. They say he has no plan in his suffering of his people. And I never have I heard such a foolish thing because the scriptures are clear. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far greater or more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let me tell you how that really works and, and you get a better picture of it. God not only overrules sin, but he also harnesses it and accomplishes his own purposes in doing so. That happened when God permitted Satan and his servants to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, causing him to suffer more than any man up to that point ever had or ever will. By the sacrificing of his son, however, God doomed the devil and he provided salvation for everyone who would believe. That amazes me that it was the suffering of Christ that brought it about. The suffering of Christ. God could have brought salvation in a thousand ways, yea, a million ways. But he chose that way. It's also interesting that it was for God's glory. God permitted Job to suffer more personally than any human we know of as, as, as far as losses are concerned, which is recorded for us in his book. We also understand, however, God honored his own name, shut the devil up, restored Job double what he had lost. And on top of all that, he left the generations to follow a book that comforts them in sufferings for his glory. Job suffered immeasurably, unexplainably, but God used it for his glory. But not only so, God permitted the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ to capture the apostle Paul, put him in prison, treat him with some of the most inhumane acts that we know anything about in Christian history. He suffered greatly, and that would be an understatement. Yet, in those dark dungeon prison chambers where Paul the Apostle was held as a prisoner, we have now coming from them the prison epistles, which became the inspired word of God, the roadmaps for successful, effective, fruitful Christian living, and on top of all that, some of the greatest lessons on how to handle suffering. What happened to that? Out of his suffering, God got glory. And every time you open a Bible and read any of the epistles, God keeps getting glory 
But Paul suffered. But Paul suffered. Job suffered. Suffered more than you or I ever will or ever could imagine. But God got glory. And the reason is, in the end, that how God got it, obviously, was by those people surrendering, as it were, to the hand and the will of God. Let me call your attention to a passage, and I want you to see this before we close this morning. The word suffer or suffered refers to various degrees of hardship, pain, and so forth, both physically and mentally. I was reading a devotional rabbit trail this week and ran across Matthew 27, 19. It says, when he was set down on the judgment seat, and uh, talking about Pilate, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered, I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Here's a pagan suffering over the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I know it doesn't mean pain and suffering that way. It means mental anguish. It means uh, something in the mind and the emotion that is wrestling and is being challenged. And here you have a pagan's wife who is contemplating the Lord Jesus Christ that her husband is going to pass a sentence upon. And she sends him word and says, don't have anything to do with this guy because I have suffered over this guy. I mean, this guy has caused me to suffer. I say to you, you know why? You know why she was suffering? You know why God let that happen? I'm convinced to bring her to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cause her to think for a second, what about who is this guy? Why are you suffering over this guy? He's just another Jew to you. Why would you care? Unless he was different. And I believe it was the, the work of God in her heart to bring her to the realization Jesus was different. He's not your run-of-the-mill Jew that you Romans have run over in the past. He was different. And I believe personally that that statement in chapter number 27 and verse number 19 by Pilate's wife, is an indicative work that God does sometimes bring into our lives suffering of mind and heart to bring us to a relationship to himself. And I believe that's what he was doing with Pilate's wife. I believe he was showing his mercy and causing her to be disturbed about what her husband was about to do. By the way, let us make sure that the sufferings that we are involved in is over our testimony and our witness for Christ and not our wrong behavior. Let me point out that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 8 and verse number 12. He said, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Interesting verse. He tells you in the first part of Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's the first part. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. When you go out tomorrow and face the world, He is saying to you, don't be ashamed of Him. Somebody comes to your front door, don't you be ashamed to tell them that you're a Christian and you follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a job and you work with someone and they come up to you and say, Hey, what did you do yesterday? Don't be ashamed to say to them, I was in church yesterday morning and evening and we worship the Lord. I'm a Christian and I go to church on Sunday and I worship the Lord. He is saying flatly, straight up late, don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul adds a sort of a post note, one of those footnote kind of thing. He said, nor of me as prisoner. You see, it'd be, it's interesting that it's easy to be ashamed of people who are a little more outspoken about Christ than you are. And Paul knew that about Timothy. And he said, look, I've got myself in prison for preaching the truth. And I know full well it'd be easy for you to tuck tail and run. Don't do that. Don't be ashamed of Christ. And don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of people who are outspoken for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not careful, if you're protecting your friendship with the world, you will be. I have had to repent in my own heart. Years ago, there was a man who came to our church, and um, my wife would remember him because he, he asked for permission to park his truck in our parking lot in Ohio, and he, he went around giving out tracts. This man was the most tract distributor I had ever seen in my life. I mean, there was nobody that he wouldn't walk up to and say, could I give you something to read, sir? He was very kind. He was polite. He was gracious. And many people would accept what he did, and some would reject him. But the fact of the matter is, I went with him on two occasions. In fact, took him to eat one day. He didn't, uh, he didn't have anything, so I took him to eat. And when I went out to eat with this guy, we went to this quick, you know, what they say is a fast food. There's no such creature. You know, no such creature. There's no way to get fast food unless you, uh, you go to my 
refrigerator and pull out my bologna pack and get one piece of bologna and two pieces of bread and throw that thing together. That's that's fast food, and I might add, great eating, great eating. You can't get any better than that. But the point is this. The point is this. I took this guy out, and we were at the counter, and I said, well, here's what this is, uh, Mr. So-and-so, and just go ahead and order whatever you want. And he didn't say, give me, uh, he said, ma'am, if you died right here before I get my order in, would you go to heaven? And I said, uh, she needs to get your order. If you want to go ahead and give her the order, she'll we'll get out of here. And it just took me by surprise. And when it did, I, I think I got red-faced. I think it embarrassed me. You know, I, and I just sort of looked around. There was people behind us. There were people over here. There were people over there. And he's talking to her about coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can sit here and say, well, there's a time and place and he shouldn't have done it. You can say all that you want to. But from his heart of hearts, the most important thing was to make sure this woman was going to heaven, not what he got to eat for lunch. And this preacher stands right beside him. I'm confident I was red-faced. I got out of there after we sat down, we ate our meal, we left. And by the way, four more times while we were there, did he give out tracts and ask the question, if you died today, you know you'd go to heaven. And when we got out, I came back to the truck. I was, one, I was so glad got him back to that truck. I thought, man, I, I can't handle this. And when I got him out and I began to drive back to my office, as if a spear went through my heart. And by the way, this verse came to mind. I happened to be preaching through Second Timothy at the time. And when... I got back to my office. I could not get this off my mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. And I sat at my desk, and uh, between me and you, I wept. I said, Lord, I am ashamed of myself that he thought more about witnessing than he did eating, and it bothered me that he did. I'm sorry. Whether I agree or disagree, that's irrelevant. And it doesn't matter to me whether you agree or disagree. That's irrelevant. What's important is in his heart, he believed that was what he was to do, and he did it. And as a preacher of the gospel, I should have been applauding him and encouraging him, and I sit there embarrassed by him. God smote my heart deeply. But there's a second thing to this verse, and it's the latter part. He says, But be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. What that tells me is the, the way that Paul became a prisoner is under the afflictions. He spoke up when if he'd kept his mouth shut, he could have avoided prison. What it's saying is, you speak up wherever you are, whenever opportunity comes and whenever you are prompted by the Spirit of the Lord, you speak up even if it causes affliction for you. And he says, it's not encouragement, it's an order. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions. Did you know you're commanded just as much to be a partaker of the afflictions as of the, of the gospel according to the power of God as you are to not be ashamed of Jesus Christ? So when you would say amen to me on the first part of the verse, you need to say amen to me on the latter part of the verse that you're commanded to be a partaker of the afflictions that go along with sharing the gospel. And that we don't like. See, who wants to be afflicted because we do something in a witness for Christ? Who wants to be? I submit to you, you may not want to be, but I submit to you, commanded to be. Be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel to the power of God. There's something else in verse number 12, which is important. He says, verse 12, 2 Timothy 1, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What Paul was saying is here, he didn't just tell Timothy not to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and didn't just tell him, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Paul goes on in verse 12 and says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And as he sat in that prison cell and would indeed find out later to be killed from one, the fact of the matter is that here's a man who said that I don't care what comes into my life, if in suffering or pain or affliction or trouble, whatever it may be, I will trust the Lord that it will be for His glory and I'll accept it. I'll accept it with all thanksgiving. And that's what Paul the Apostle did. By the way, don't let your suffering be because you violated Bible directives or Bible principles. 
That means to say, make sure it's because you are giving out the gospel and you may be suffering the afflictions of the gospel by sharing it with people who, who may not accept it the way you'd like for them to or may even reject it. Or it may be that uh, your testimony has been offended, offensive to someone and they've rebuked you for it. But whatever, let it be on that side of the ledger that you get suffering. Don't let it be on the side that you simply disobeyed Bible directives or Bible principles. For instance, suffering to make payments on a house or a car or a trip that you couldn't afford in the first place. Don't suffer for that. Don't suffer from the conflicts of a marriage that was prohibited of God in the first place. Don't let it be that kind of suffering. Don't let it be the kind of suffering that is getting what you wanted only to find out that what you wanted was wrong in the first place. You see, how good God is is to make sure that our suffering is not wasted but useful. And He does so. He produces in us what sermons, Christian books, and Christian tapes could never accomplish. And that's what God does and has done. In the Old Testament, there's a passage which we'll not turn now, but... In Deuteronomy chapter number 8, it tells about the Israelites who were in the wilderness. What's interesting about it, it tells that God actually had to provide them everything they needed because they could not provide it for themselves. They suffered. And I must admit, in some cases, they complained and murmured, but they suffered. Every need they had, they had to turn to God to supply it because there were no Walmarts and there were no Krogers in the wilderness. And every time they needed something, they had to call out to God and God had to provide it. The fact of the matter is that both the hunger and the manna in the wilderness were gifts of God. You see, I think God puts in the hearts of some people and some of us the hunger so we have to turn to Him to get the secure, the secure remedy or solution. And I believe that's what He did to those Israelites. Suffering's not wasted. It oftentimes is allowed by God to bring us to the realization of what our real needs are. By the way, two things, or three, and we'll close. Looking no further than the present life, this present world, the ways of God may at times seem unequal. I'd remind you to go read Psalm 73 if you think that. That's the passage where the guy in the psalmist looks at the world and everybody was doing evil and wrong or getting by with it, and he, he just thought it was so unfair. And it says in the text, until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord. When he got with the Lord, he realized that God wasn't unfair at all. God just doesn't work on our timetable. God doesn't work this hour. God doesn't work this week. God doesn't always pay on Friday. But when this guy got into the house of God, he realized that. And he realized God was fair. It was just his perspective of him that made God unfair. And you listen to me, and you listen to me good. God is never unfair. Never. He is never unfair. Your perception may be unfair, but he, he is not unfair. He is always fair and just and honorable and right. Always. There's a second thing to understand. At present, sufferings are nothing in degree. And I mean by that, for these are called light compared to the eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, For our light afflictions, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So what he's saying is that the present sufferings or afflictions that you and I are going through, no matter what they are, they're nothing in degree compared to eternity. And a third thing, the present sufferings are nothing in duration. They are but for a moment. They are but for a moment. Eternity is forever. And what you and I must grasp on is that this eternity that comes our way, God has so much in store for us there that what you're going through now and what I'm going through now won't even register on the scale. And you say, how could it not with this being so overwhelming and so burdensome and, and so painful at times? I don't know how my beloved, but I do know this. God says, it doth not even compare. You don't even need to put it in the scale because it doesn't even match up. It's not worthy to be put in the scale with what He has in store for us and the glory that awaits His people. Bottom line, if you're a true child of God, I don't think there is any doubt at all you're going to suffer. And especially the more public you are of your faith, the more you're going to suffer. 
But you ought not fear it. You ought not be backward about it, you see. And, and, and you say, well, what about these, these common things that people get, these diseases and the suffering that goes with them? I repeat, I believe God allows them to come so you can teach unbelievers how to handle it. So I think you're just as obligated if you have a physical illness as you are if you have a spiritual testimony of which you offended people and you've suffered for it. I don't care where the suffering comes from. The Scripture does not delineate that even in our text of Romans 8. It doesn't say this kind of suffering versus that kind of suffering. It just says the whole ten yards of suffering, wherever it comes from. The point made is God wants to get glory from it and He wants to remind you this is not going to be forever. This is a temporary deal. And what's so important is that people who see you and know you and know the suffering you've gone through with know full well that you accept it as from the good hand of God with His purpose to be fulfilled in your life. And you'll do it to the best of your ability. That's what they need to see. They don't need to see a bunch of complainers. They don't need to see a bunch of whiners. They don't need to see a bunch of people who are beating God up every week because God didn't do or did do something and we're hurting because of it. They don't need to hear that. Because their ideal of that is God is a mean old ogre up in the heavens and he carries a big stick and he's whacked you and he's hurt you and you're suffering for it. That's not it at all. He is allowing us to suffer for his glory so we will be the beneficiaries of greater glory when we get there. So the more you suffer here, I'm convinced the greater the glory you're going to get there. I think that's the whole point of the scale concept. But at the same time, I remind you of one final point. Don't leave here without comprehending this one. Please understand, this idea of the suffering is not contributive to salvation in any way. Don't leave here thinking that your suffering is somehow going to get you credit with God. No, no, no. You must understand that no suffering that any Christian does contributes in any way to their salvation. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin debt. He paid it all. And there's nothing for us to add to it. So no suffering has anything to do with redemption. It has everything to do with God's glory and your maturing. Don't miss it. If God's working in your life in that way, or if He has not yet, He will. He will. Passages of the Psalms, there are no children of God that have not yet walked through the valley. They all will eventually. They all will eventually. And you will too. And I will too. How will we handle it? Do we know for certain? Is this a checkpoint of our salvation? Do we know for sure that we've been saved by the grace of God? And two, do we really trust God with our health and our well-being? Do you really trust Him? Or who do you trust? If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as Savior, let me encourage you to come and allow us to counsel you from His Word. If you do, then rejoice in that position that God has given you to suffer for Him, that you may be glorified with Him, and that to our glory and His good. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. and Thank you for the truths of this passage of Scripture for which we've drawn a text this morning of Romans 8. And Father, I fear that in the Christian life we have looked for it to be too soft, too simple. And I suspect our day is coming, and maybe sooner than later, to which, as Bible-believing people, we will be called to suffer more fully and more frequently as this world grows in more hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ and for His Word, His Church, His standards, and even the folks who bear testimony and the witness for Christ of salvation, as they hate that more, we probably individually will suffer more for our stand. I pray, therefore, help us to be sure, first and foremost, that we're child, a child of God. Help us to have no doubt about that. May that be a settled issue. May we, like so many of the New Testament epistle writers, say, I know, I know. As Paul did, I know whom I have believed. I pray, Father, too, that we'd also know you well enough to know that what you do, you do well and do right. The judge of the universe will always do right. Remind us of that. And remind us that you're always fair. You're always fair. If there's anything that seems unfair, it's from our perspective. We don't understand your ways. And I pray you'll help us not to voice that concern with the world because all the world will see is that we have an awful God. Not an awesome God, but an awful God. 
So I pray help us to rightly construe and communicate that we accept from the Father's hand whatever He brings, knowing that He does all things well. I pray also that you'd help us in our suffering, Father, to seek your face, to know your purposes, and then help us to cooperate with you. Help us to cooperate with you, knowing that there are people watching and knowing that we could, by all means, have and be the light that would shine before men that they may see our good works, even in our suffering. They glorify our Father which is in heaven. May many be pointed to righteousness through that. As you use the sufferings of Paul to give us the great epistles, as you use the sufferings in Job's case to bring us a great book of comfort, but most of all, as you use the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ and his death to bring us so great salvation, remind us that you get glory through the sufferings of your people, and that ought to be enough to accept suffering 